God through the reading of our scripture. In James chapter 2, we'll be reading in today. So if you have it, you can follow along with me. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And God's word says the following. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That is God's word. I want to invite you to turn to James chapter 2 verse 1. As we continue our series through the book of James. There's a lot of things that tell us. Although we've gotten a slow start this year. There's a lot of things that tell us. Summer is here. We had the movie on the lawn Friday. The church picnic yesterday. And VBS kicks off Tomorrow, summer is here. The evenings are longer. There's free concerts at Grant Park. Miko's Italian Ice is open for business. The corn on the cob is going for a dime. Lake Michigan's water is now getting slightly above freezing. School kids and school teachers alike have a certain glimmer in their eyes. There's no doubt about it. Summer is here. Another usual mark of summer is one particular type of movie that it seems like Hollywood just loves to make. It's the perennial end of the world movie that revolves around this simple plot. Alien invaders show up to Earth to rob all its resources, leaving the planet as a lifeless shell. And it usually goes like this. Oh no! The aliens are here. They're stealing all our resources. They may be stronger, but we can outsmart them. And at last, the human race is led to a narrow victory as the invaders are overcome. Year after year, summer after summer, this movie is recycled back into the theaters with slight variation. And this morning I want to borrow this fictional imagery to remind us of a serious fact. The church all over the world 
including right here on this corner, is in danger of invasion. The invader will come in, rob the church's vitality, and leave it as a lifeless shell, empty, maybe not of people, but of power, of pulsating gospel life. Maybe it looks like a church on the outside, but not on the inside. And it's a very real threat. It has happened to churches all throughout history. It's happening in churches today. And we would be unwise to think that it could only happen out there. The church everywhere, including right here, is in danger of invasion. Only it doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside. It comes into the church by residing in our hearts. We bring it in. Its name? Partiality. Or another way to put it, favoritism. The the definition of favoritism is the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. The practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. It means choosing some people while ignoring others for unfair, unjust, uncaring reasons. In fact, the biblical word used in our passage literally means to accept someone according to face. It's about who we show love to and who we don't based on outward factors. Favoritism is a very real threat. It invades our hearts and invades the church. And then what? We all need to be on guard. A teacher from Iowa once famously and and quite frankly soberingly showed us how prone we are to this kind of behavior. Just another contribution the great state of Iowa has made to our nation. The day after Martin Luther King Jr. died, this teacher, Jane Elliott, decided to do something for her third grade class. Her class was made up of students entirely from Anglo backgrounds. She wanted them to understand the dynamics of prejudice, not just in their heads, not just textbook information. So she led them in an exercise. She told the class that she, that, that she, the teacher, had blue eyes. And because she did, all the blue-eyed students were the best, while the brown-eyed students were inferior. Miss Elliott stated up front that this was strictly an exercise, but the class surprisingly took to it. Years later, it was recorded in a documentary called A Class Divided. And when you watch this film, the reactions of the students are simply startling. One student lagged behind in a class-wide study. Everyone else had gotten their place in their books, and she hadn't yet. So another student blurted out, she's a brown-eyed. Another boy offers, Miss Elliot, you should keep the yardstick on your desk in case the brown-eyed people get out of hand. 
Later on, a blue-eyed boy remarks, they're not smart. At recess that day, there was a fight. One boy punched another because the other boy was taunting him, calling him brown eyes. You see, all of a sudden, that expression was an insult. And it just kept going. Example after example, the class was being torn apart. Looking back, Miss Elliot concluded, I watched what had been marvelous, cooperative, wonderful, thoughtful children turn into nasty, vicious, discriminating little third graders in the space of 15 minutes. And although the exercise was controversial and probably should not be repeated, its message is enduring. Our hearts are prone to making unfair, unjust, and uncaring distinctions almost immediately. And it takes many forms. Some are more obvious, like in this example, but others are more subtle, like who we choose to go to and who we choose to avoid within the church community. We are prone to this kind of behavior because it's part of our old fallen nature. But James reminds us that it has no place in our new nature, our new hearts, given when we trust in Christ. He states in chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Or as the NIV puts it, Believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. In other words, faith and favoritism do not mix. They are completely incompatible. If we rewind to James chapter 1 and the very last verse of the chapter, it says that a major part of pure and undefiled religion is caring for those in need. Our passage this morning is a continuation of that thought. In order to care for those in need, we must rid ourselves of favoritism. It's one way we can tell the difference between sincere faith and going through the motions. If our faith is sincere, if our hearts have been made new, we will seek to uproot and put off favoritism from our lives. So right from the beginning, from verse 1, we see the driving theme of this passage, we believers must fight against favoritism within ourselves. But James knows his readers might not readily admit this. They might deny it. I know other people do that, but not me. Favoritism is often hardest to see within ourselves. So in verses 2 through 3, James presents them with a scenario to help them take an honest look at themselves. It's sort of like a test case. In this scenario, James tells the readers to picture being at a church gathering, much like this, and noticing two people arrive at the same time. One is wearing a gold ring, a status symbol at that time for belonging to the upper class in the Roman world. And this person is very well dressed. The expression fine clothes literally means shining clothing. And we're not talking about sequins. Clean, crisp, and stylish, I imagine, complete with a radiant smile. You can just picture it. 
There's no doubt this is a person of means, well-groomed, well-dressed, and well-connected. Someone who clearly has wealth, power, and influence in the community. The picture is of an all-around compelling person. But the other person who came in at the same time could not have been more different. James describes him as a poor man. There are two words for poor used in the Bible. And this one is used for people who have absolutely nothing. There were no programs of assistance during this time. They had absolutely nothing. They had to depend on others for the basic necessities of life. It is therefore possible that this person will ask for help. Instead of shining clothing, he is wearing shabby clothes, rags. The word shabby that James uses here is the same word translated in chapter 1, verse 21. You can look at it. It's just a chapter before. It's the same word translated as filthiness. It implies that this person only has one pair of clothes. They are matted and stained and there may be a strong odor. The scenario then pictures people of the church coming up to the well-dressed man, saying, Welcome! We're glad that you came! And escorting him to the best seat in the house. Here! Sit next to me! But the other man, the man in rags, who might ask for help, who might smell doesn't get the same greeting. Essentially, they disregard him, treating him like a, like a nuisance, saying, you can stand in the back or sit on the floor. The scenario is driven by an underlying question posed to the readers. If placed in the same situation, what would they do? How would they respond? Would they show favoritism by choosing one and avoiding the other? But James already knows the answer to that question. In verse 4 he says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In other words, James is saying, Isn't it true that you have done or would do Similarly, the question expects a positive answer. Yes, it's true. And if it was true for them, we would unwise to be, think that it couldn't be true for us as well. The scenario poses the underlying question to you and I. If placed in the same situation, what would we do? Especially if we were in need of something and one person had real potential to meet that very need. Imagine you were really in need of a job and one of the two people had connections in all the right places. Imagine you really wanted to get your kid into a certain school which I used to think was just college, but then when we moved to Chicago, it's like elementary school. Imagine you really wanted to get your kid into a certain school, 
And one of the two people was head of admissions. Imagine you were struggling to find a place to live. And one of the two people owned a lot of property in the city. Imagine you were really in need of food. And Mr. Mariano himself shows up at the door. Imagine your favorite Chicago baseball team. I'll let you decide. Was in the World Series. And one of the two people had a whole block of box seats. Imagine you had loans that were piling up out of your control, compounding, and one of the two people was in charge of loan forgiveness. To whom would you say, here, sit next to me, These are extreme examples. But it could be more subtle. Maybe one of the people you perceive is more comfortable, familiar, and convenient to you. Maybe there are cultural, ethnic, or social differences. Maybe one is easy to talk to, and one is not easy. Maybe one fits in with your friends, and one does not. Maybe... You simply perceive that one requires less effort and one requires more. Do I go out of my way for those who are unfamiliar to me? Who would you choose to go to and who would you choose to avoid? The scenario forces us to take an honest look at ourselves. Do we show favoritism? John Polhill says this. The problem of discrimination or favoritism is a perennial one for Christians because it is a tendency of basic human nature to favor those we serve to profit one from the most. To favor those we serve to profit from the most. But I actually disagree with that quote in that it's incomplete. It got the first half right. Favoritism may be a tendency of human nature, but brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to know that we have been given a new nature, a new heart. So we can either give in to this whole thing or by God's power and grace fight against it within ourselves. James is calling every believer in every age to fight against favoritism. And in the rest of the passage, he gives three ways we can fight against it. So that's where we turn our attention to now. Three ways to fight against favoritism within ourselves. The first is actually found by looking back at verse 1. Let's read it again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This verse tells us we fight favoritism within ourselves when we gaze upon Jesus Christ. This is really the foundation of everything else. Everything else flows from this first point. And in order to really grasp it, we need to remember the overall background of the book of James. 
He was writing to believers in a desperate situation. Because of the onset of persecution, these believers were scorned by society, held at arm's length. They weren't trusted. Many of them had to relocate just to save their lives. In these new places, they struggled to find jobs, to start businesses, to buy goods, to build connections, to make friends. So many doors were shut in their faces. This fledgling church community was struggling to get by. In the face of these struggles, just imagine ourselves in those shoes. In the face of these struggles, Imagine the immense temptation to pay special attention to the person with resources. The person who could maybe help out. Imagine how easy it would be to seek after that person in the name of church hospitality, but really to get your own needs met. Well aware of this pressure, James speaks directly to that situation and says, Remember that Jesus Christ is The Lord of glory. You see, this is a small detail, but it's significant. That's part of the reason we're encouraging you to slow down and and write out the book of James, word for word. James didn't just kind of tack on this title for Jesus Christ randomly. It's a purposeful reminder that Jesus, the one they belong to, is the Lord of glory. It means that Jesus is seated in heaven as Lord over all. He sees what they're going through. He knows what they need. And there's absolutely nothing beyond His loving care. The Lord of glory is more than able to provide for all of their needs. They don't need to seek out relationships from those who they serve to profit from the most. This church community was in a desperate situation. They were tempted to show favoritism in order to meet their own needs. And James is saying, you don't have to. You don't have to scramble to take matters into your own hands. You don't have to be self-seeking and self-serving in who you pay attention to. Fight favoritism with trust in God. You think... The man's ring is glorious. Think how much infinitely greater is the glory of the God who loves you. The God who has committed himself to you. To illustrate, maybe some of us have found ourselves in this situation. You don't have to selfishly seek to make friends with the cashier worker. Trying to get a good deal. When your father owns the store, you don't have to selfishly cater to certain people when our Lord, the Lord of glory, owns all that we need. Now I know what some of you might be thinking. What if God sent that certain person as his way of providing for you? Right? Maybe this is how he's answering your prayers for a job or something else you truly need. I just want to say, if this is God's way of providing, we don't have to be grabby, seizing his gifts before he gives them. We can wait on him. We can trust in his timing. 
We can seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, knowing that all of our needs will be added to us. They will be taken care of. I'm not saying be passive and do nothing. I am saying be trusting and be faithful. Philippians 4.19 is in the context of us being faithful. And it says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of in glory in Christ Jesus. We fight favoritism within ourselves when we gaze upon Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That is the first way. The second way is found in verses 5 through 7. We read, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? From this we see, second point, we fight favoritism within ourselves when we gain God's perspective. In this verse, James reminds his readers that God sees things differently than the world does. Unlike the world, God does not honor the depths of someone's pockets, but the depths of someone's faith. Notice the contrast. Poor in terms of the world. Rich in terms of faith. In other words, believers who the world sees as lacking in material resources are often the ones who are abundant in spiritual resources. And that is what God sees. He sees the spiritual realities. He does not honor outward characteristics of prestige, but inward qualities of the heart. That's what he sees. And we do need to be careful here. We don't want to water down these strong words on the one hand. But at the same time, we don't want to take them too far on the other. There are two things this passage is not saying. It is not saying that God's salvation comes to only the poor. It is simply stating that many of those who are saved are poor. This was true in James's day. Most of the people he's writing to were not well resourced. Most would be considered poor. And this is true in our day. When we take a look at global Christianity, many, if not most, of our brothers and sisters across the world do not have much material resources. Many of those who are saved are poor. But that doesn't mean that the rich cannot be saved. The gospel is an open invitation to all. Whoever. Whoever. Believes in him. Shall not perish. But have everlasting life. Whoever. Calls upon the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. This passage is not saying that God's salvation comes to only the poor. And it's not saying that God's salvation comes to all the poor. Notice four words at the end of verse 5. I love these words. Those 
who love him. The poor who are saved are those who love him. That's what makes all the difference. And this applies to all walks of life. There's no, no one's background or bracket can save them. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you come from a Christian home or not, whether you went to a Christian school or not, whether you attended church all your life and know all the facts, the question that cuts through all these categories is, do you love Him? Do you love Him? The poor who are saved are those who love God. But I think this passage makes clear, along with many others all throughout Scripture, that the poor who love God often have a love, a quality of love that others can learn much from. Among our brothers and sisters in need, there is often a quality of love for the Lord that He sets His stamp on. He honors it. It's like He's saying, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm after. Maybe part of it is when you don't have so much stuff, when all you have is Jesus, your love is less divided. There's a quality of love that says, Jesus, I have nothing else but you. And that is all I need. God honors this attitude. He honors this quality of love. But James says his readers were doing the exact opposite. They were opposing those who God honors and honoring those who oppose God. They were catering to certain wealthy people who were the very ones oppressing God's people, dragging them to court and insulting God's name. James is not saying that all wealthy people oppose God. He's simply pointing to a particular situation to help expose their blind spots. It's like he's saying, you have it all backwards. Why are you honoring those who offer you nothing but harm and dishonoring those who offer so much of what is truly good? It's because you're seeing things as the world does and not as God does. When we gain God's perspective... We see how much we stand to benefit from those who may be poor in the eyes of the world, but rich in faith. James is saying, don't show favoritism because you'll miss out on the great spiritual resources brought by our brothers and sisters in need. Notice that James is not saying, welcome the poor out of pity. No, essentially he's saying, don't miss out. We will miss out if they are excluded from our fellowship. We gather not to make money, but to make disciples. And if discipleship is about maturing in God, deepening our faith, then we have much to learn from those who God calls rich in faith. Learning from those in need is a huge asset in our spiritual journey. It's irreplaceable. It's important for our discipleship. God sees beyond 
material riches. And, and he sees too the inner spiritual riches. And he wants us to do the same. Do we believe this? Do we so believe this? That we are seeking out those in need in our community. When people under these circumstances participate in our church life, do we take time to learn their first names? Are we just as warm and welcoming? I believe this church family is, is very warm and welcoming. That's one of the first things Lisa and I noticed back when we were visitors. James is telling us to be equally warm and completely embrace every single person who walks through those doors and hopefully into our lives to follow up just as hard. We have much to benefit in the things that truly matter. We have much to benefit in our spiritual growth. Don't show favoritism or we'll miss out. We fight favoritism within ourselves when we gain God's perspective. This is the second way. The third way is found in verses 8 through 13. We read, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lastly, we learn. We fight favoritism within ourselves when we grasp the law of love. In this section, James is anticipating that some of his readers might hear his strong words in this passage and argue, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Isn't favoritism kind of a minor issue compared to others? Isn't this kind of nitpicking? Is it really that bad to give special attention to certain people and not others? So we're good Christian people. It's not like we're committing any of the biggies, right? But James points his readers no further than the royal law. What is the royal law? Another way of putting it would be the law of the kingdom. In essence, it means the law that Jesus fulfilled and passed on to his followers. According to Jesus in Matthew 22, the heart of it is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And James is saying, favoritism is not a minor thing. When you show favoritism, you are breaking the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus held up this command as part of the great commandment. Part of the very heart and soul of how God would have his people live. 
and favoritism shatters it. And not only that, when we fail to love our neighbor, what does it say about our love for God? Scripture tells us that these two things are wrapped together. Our attitude towards our neighbor is a reflection of our attitude towards God. How we treat our neighbor is how we end up treating God. 1 John 4.21 Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Favoritism, then, is no minor thing. Furthermore, James argues, his readers had the wrong view of God's law in the first place. They were thinking about God's law as if it's okay to break some areas as long as they were keeping others. And that's not just James's readers. That's a common mindset for us as well. It's common to think, I'm basically alright with God. I know I've done some wrong things, but I've also done a lot of good too. But God sees His law not as a bunch of separate, unrelated pieces, but as a cohesive whole. Either it's broken or not, it stands together and falls together as one. I've seen it illustrated this way. Imagine you fell off a cliff and at the last minute grabbed hold of a chain that was dangling there. But then you looked up and saw that one link of the chain was breaking. It wouldn't matter to you if all the other links were perfectly intact. If that one link breaks, the whole chain is broken. If we break God's law at one point, regardless if all the other areas are kept intact, the whole thing is broken. And we are given the status as lawbreakers. That's why no one can be saved by obeying the law. We all break it in one way or another. We are all lawbreakers. So let's just sum this up. This is no small matter. It's not about bonus points for Christians. James says, by showing favoritism, we are breaking what Jesus held up as part of the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that makes us guilty as lawbreakers before God. Is that the end? Is it just, okay, boom, go home. Where does this leave us? It leaves us with one last, amazing, astonishing, life-changing statement. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This statement means two things. Number one, it means that God has not left us under His judgment, but offers us His mercy. We are guilty as lawbreakers, but Jesus took the punishment that we deserve on the cross. Colossians 2.14 says in essence, He has taken your, your legal status as lawbreakers and nailed it to the cross, canceling it forever. And He fulfilled the law perfectly for us. He took our punishment and offers us His perfection in exchange. We can stand before God cleansed and complete when we believe in Christ. This lavish mercy can be ours. 
when we have Christ who fulfilled the law, we will not face judgment as lawbreakers. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy saves us. And number two, the second meaning, our mercy shows that we are saved. This summarizes the whole passage. Mercy is defined as acts of love towards those in need. James is saying, a sign of genuine faith is our willingness to fight favoritism within ourselves and show love towards those in need. In other words, our acts of mercy, our evidence, are a mark of true faith. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we have Christ, we will not face judgment. And if we have Christ, we will show mercy towards others. By the power of Jesus within us, we will victoriously fight favoritism within ourselves. We will fight favoritism within ourselves when we gaze upon Jesus Christ. We will fight favoritism within ourselves when we gaze, when we gain God's perspective. And we will fight favoritism within ourselves when we grasp the law of love. At this time, I'd like to invite the band to come forward as we close in prayer.